Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of you may recognize the name of John Wimber. I initially remember John Wimber as being the keyboard player for the Righteous Brothers. That shows you kind of how old I am, but I still like the Righteous Brothers nonetheless. John Wimber was also the founder of what they call the Vineyard Movement. Maybe you've seen a vineyard church someplace. I, I can remember actually preaching in a vineyard church in Nizhny Novgorod in the former Soviet Union a number of years ago. But John Wimber was a product also of what you might call the Jesus People Movement of the 1960s. He met Jesus in a rather dramatic fashion, and, and as soon as he accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, he got a Bible, and he immediately began reading the New Testament, beginning with the Gospels, and then just poured over the book of Acts. He was so excited about what he was reading that he couldn't wait to get to church. But when he got to church for a service, he immediately became disillusioned. After the service was over, Wimber looked around at some of the people in the church and said, when are you going to do that stuff? And they said, what stuff? And he said, you know, the stuff. See, he had been reading in Acts and he had been reading about conversions and, and about healings and deliverance and all these other miracles that took place in the early church. But instead of signs and wonders... He, knows, he saw no sign of anything that made him wonder, except wondering why these people sat there with such sour faces in the presence of God. Now, I've been rereading the book of Acts again lately, too, and I have seen, it has been drawn to my attention again by the Holy Spirit, that signs and wonders were not the exceptions. They were the norm of the early church. Healings and supernatural happenings were expected, and they occurred regularly. Now, there are some people today, I don't agree with them, but they would, they would explain this all aside, and they were saying, well, those people then, and we, we live in a different dispensation, is the word they use, and they say that the age of miracles is all over. They said all of the miracles, all the signs, all of the wonders, all of the manifestation of the Spirit, that was for a specific time, a specific place, just to authenticate the message of the apostles. But we don't need that anymore today. Now, every time I hear that, my response is, really? Are you kidding me? Really? I mean, are you trying to tell me that God actually divides up history in nice, neat little segments where he acts one way here and he acts another way there and so that he treats one generation differently than he treats another generation? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Because if that's what you're telling me, then maybe God is not the God I read about in Hebrews 13.8 when it says that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I mean, friends, think about it. If God acts differently at different times, then he is one kind of God at one point in history, and then he's an entirely different kind of God in a different period of history. That's why I'm pretty excited today. I, I'm excited not because it's Mother's Day. I'm excited because, well, it's Sunday. 
And I'm not really excited because it's Sunday. I'm just excited that we get together and worship God on a day that we call Pentecost. But I'm here today because I think God has given me a message through this scripture today to challenge not just you, but to challenge myself. See, the church today needs to discover again what it means that we have an unchanging God and an unchanging kingdom. I mean, this last week, it's just been impressed upon me over and over again that we need once again to discover the power of Pentecost. We need to become a Pentecostal church. And I'm not talking about denominationally. I'm just saying it's high time that the church, and maybe even this church, goes back to being an Acts 2 church. We need to understand what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit and not just dabble with the Holy Spirit. We need to be operating in the gifts of the Spirit and not say, oh, keep those in the back row for other folks. We need to see people's lives turned around completely going in another direction. We need to see people healed physically and emotionally and relationally and socially and spiritually. We need to experience the unity that only the Holy Spirit can bring into a gathering known as the body of Christ. And we need to live in genuine love for one another. And, and guess what? And when we fail, then we need to learn to ask each other for forgiveness. And we need to reconcile one to another. I thought about it even this morning. They say, you folks over here and you folks over there, why don't you go introduce yourselves? I was going to make everybody move to a different spot this morning. And, and as you pass, say, oh, who are you? See, we need to have genuine love for each other, which means it starts by even getting to know who each other is. I mean, can you imagine what's going to happen someday when this church has two services or three services or a Saturday night or a Wednesday night service? I mean, that's what the Holy Spirit's telling me. I don't know, maybe he doesn't talk to you. <laughs> I think he would if you listened. See, we need to have the fire fall and we need the people to stand up. It's just that easy. But see, if that's going to happen, certain conditions need to be met and certain perceptions need to be changed. What I'm talking about this morning is a total paradigm shift. I want to talk to you this morning about Pentecostal power, and I'm going to just share three points with you today. Here's the very first one. Pentecostal power comes when you realize that the Christian life is not about keeping rules, but it's all about knowing Jesus. Do you get that Pentecostal power when you come to realize when church and all of this stuff connected with church is not about keeping rules, but it is knowing Jesus? Let me tell you about the church I grew up in. I, I, I'm not, I don't mean to be critical about my church. I love my church. I grew up at St. John's Lutheran Church in Seward, Nebraska. Had a wonderful grade school right across the street from Concordia College, where I went to college. Concordia High School, where I went to high school, and I actually met my wife. Wonderful place. Now, I realize I'm getting kind of old, and you get selective memory. But, you know, what I remember about my church growing up was, basically, they taught you how to be nice and how important it was to be a good person. We were told to be kind, and we were told to love each other. That was all good. And, and you know, if there was ever an opportunity for somebody to actually receive Jesus, if there was ever an altar call at St. John's Lutheran Church, I must have slept through it, because I never saw anything like it. And I don't think many of you had experiences a whole lot different than mine. In our church, every Sunday, everybody dressed in their Sunday best, and they acted their Sunday best. 
the church service was predictable and it was formal. Now, don't get me wrong here. I want you to know the Bible was read. The preacher probably said all kinds of nice stuff. But one thing I can tell you was the church I was raised in had absolutely no passion. No passion. Sunday after Sunday, we went through the liturgy, whether it was spoken or sung, whether it was page 5, 15, 32, or in the new hymn book, 158, or whatever the, the page number is and the thing we got in our racks. Don't know what number that is. Now, that was all very meaningful. It's all very scriptural. But I got I to gotta tell you that as a 12 and 13-year-old kid, and even when I was 23, 24, and 34, and 35, and 44, and 45, I thought, man, this stuff came from a different time and a different planet. See, much of the service never connected with anybody. Or if it did, they were really careful not to show it. I mean, excitement was not exactly how you would have described any church service in the church I grew up. I mean, nobody ever came forward and shared a testimony. Certainly nobody ever raised their hand in church. I mean, after all, it's kind of hard to raise your hand when you're holding a two-ton hymn book in it. I mean, certainly nobody ever clapped. It's kind of hard to clap when you got a hymn book in your hand. And certainly nobody ever said, come on, preach it, brother. Come on, come on, now you're talking. Amen. Which is what I get all the time when I preach down in prison. I'm getting ready for two weeks when I'm down with, the, with, my, with my friends in Angola. But see, as far as I knew growing up, Christianity was about keeping the rules and being a good guy. See, if you loved God, you kind of kept it quiet and you didn't really share it with anybody. Now, I tell you, in fact, the only disruption I ever remember in church as a kid was one Sunday when a soloist in the balcony began to sing. It, it was so bad, I didn't know whether she was in pain or having a child. But it was so bad that somebody in church began snickering, which turned into laughing. And then the next person began, and suddenly everybody in church was laughing until Pastor Heidemann got back up into the pulpit and stared everybody back into stoic silence. Now, today, the same thing happens. In churches all across America, the gospel of being nice is preached. We might as well call it, Welcome to the First Church of Barney. I love you, you love me, we're one great big family. It's the, it's the, it's the gospel of nice. In some churches, this gospel of nice is translated into having a heart for social causes. And in other places, the measure of your Christianity is how tolerant you are or how inclusive you are of other people or other ideas or other lifestyles. But friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that until we can renew our commitment to preaching that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to him, nobody comes to the Father except through him, then we are not going to experience Pentecostal power or the zeal that they had in the early churches. See, until people who call themselves God's people renew their commitment to loving and knowing Jesus on a daily basis and actually living fearfully for him, we are not going to experience any power whatsoever. And until we get to the point where, you know, by repentance and faith, we stop just going through the motions without any emotions, we're dead in the water. See, as long as we think somehow, no matter how much in the back of our mind, that Christianity is something that we do, we miss the point. 
Friends, it is not about anything you do, I do, or we do. As someone said, that's all doo-doo. <laughs> See, it's all about what God has done and what God is doing. So hear me, hear me well. Don't misunderstand me. But being a Christian is not just doing right things or believing right doctrines or reciting certain liturgies or certain prayers or certain creeds. It's not about being a member of a church or this church or some denomination. It has to do with belonging to the body of Christ. It's not about baptism or communion as important as those are to this body. It's about surrendering our life, our body, our mind, our heart to Jesus and then saying, take up residence in me. Send the Holy Spirit. Fire me up because I want to be on fire. I don't want to rust out. I want to flame out. I, you know, I've always said, you know, don't let me get run over in the Walmart parking lot. That's, I don't want to die that way. I want to die on the mission field. I want to go out like Elijah in that fiery chariot. See, it's banking everything I have, everything I am on God and loving him with my whole heart. See, the Christian faith is not a feeling. I mean, Christianity is not about having a quiver in the liver. It's a, it's a real relationship with a real person, and that real person is Jesus Christ, born as a man, but who's also God. Christianity is about the most powerful and wonderful person in the universe who has this tremendous desire to know us and love us intimately. And I got news for some of you. This experience of knowing and loving God is not some tame experience. It is wild and it is wonderful. If you don't believe me, study Philippians 3.10 sometime. This just kind of wanged me right between the eyes this last week. Philippians 3.10 says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's kind of the way I always read it. And I thought, oh, wow, I, I want to know Christ. Yeah, count me in. But it says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, which implies there's something more to this than just knowing who he is. Friends, we got power at our fingertips. That's the first thing. It's a whole lot more than rules and regulations. Here's the second thing we need to understand. Pentecostal power comes when you realize that the Christian life is not just about salvation, but it's also about transformation. You get that? More than salvation, it's about transformation. Now, there are a lot of churches here in America that are really different than the one I grew up in, different from the one you grew up in. If you grew up, you know, being a Missouri sinner, or Missouri synod, um, same thing. Um, they faithfully preach about salvation every Sunday. They talk every Sunday about the need for a new birth. In fact, you're going to hear it Sunday after Sunday in a lot of churches. The scripture changes every week, but the message is, you must be born again. And i got to tell you, that's a good message, that you need to be born again. But it's only as good as far as it goes. See, it's a necessary first step, but if our faith only consists of one little event, like saying, well, I was baptized by Pastor Schmedlap a long time ago, or I was confirmed at First Lutheran Church by so-and-so. If that's all you do, you're missing something. Let me, I want you to think about it this way. What if there was a new baby born? You, you, just, you, you, and your, you and your wife or husband have this brand new baby. When the baby's born, and let's say you do this, you all celebrate the birth of that baby, but then the baby never takes in any nourishment 
the baby never gets nourished, nurtured, the baby never grows, the baby never develops, and so as wonderful as that birth was, it won't survive. Pediatricians even have a term for that. It's called failure to thrive. I'm afraid that we got too many pew ploppers across America today who are failing to thrive. Failing to thrive. See, if you think the Christian life is only about being born again, I'd say, folks, think again. It's not just about salvation. It's about transformation. I mean, to listen to some people talk, you'd think all Christianity is is to get baptized, get firm, and then just kind of park on your backside and wait for heaven to come. I got news for you. If you think, if that's the way you think, you're never going to experience Pentecostal power. You're never going to understand that Jesus came to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And see, as his agents, we can make that happen. And he says, to do that, we need to grow in holiness. We need to be salt and light in a tasteless and dark world. We are to be transformed, changed every day through spiritual disciplines like Bible study and worship and prayer and giving so that we become agents of change that everywhere we go, we cause things to happen. When I left my previous church, one of my elders told me, he said, Pastor, you're not really a mile marker on anybody's road. (laughs) He said, you are a fork in the road. He says, everybody who seems to meet you is forced to decide something. Are you going to do this or are you going to do that? And I, I, I thought, thank you. I was happy to hear that. He said, I hope you leave as many of those kind of people behind in this next church as you did at this church. Now, I think all he was saying is that there are two choices in life. There is heaven. There is hell. There's Jesus or there's the devil. You know, how, how can you walk into a group of people, whether it's in your place of business It's in your politics, it's in your neighborhood, in your school, and have nobody know that Jesus has made a difference. Well, I can tell you it's possible, and that's because you're not living with Pentecostal power. I mean, think about transformation. It's kind of like, think about it this way. Let's say you had 10 gallons of gas. You could release a tremendous amount of power and energy simply by doing what? Dropping a lit match into it. Uh, It would make a dramatic one-time impact, but put it into a brand-new Prius or some other sort of hybrid car with some sort of a high-tech engine, and those 10 gallons of gas will get the driver, I don't know, three, four, five hundred miles. Now, like anybody who likes a good Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or Rambo, I mean, I like an explosion as much as anybody. I mean, explosions are spectacular, but the sustained, controlled burn is what has lasting power. I don't think any of us here want to be a flash in the pan when it comes to being a Christian. You want to make a difference in this world each and every day you live. You don't want the Holy Spirit just to save you for a one-time deal. You want Him to use His power to change your life, to transform your life, and you want Him in your life to help you be an agent of change in somebody else's life. See, friends, the kingdom of God, a lot of people think it's way out there, far off. It's right here. 
And to be a member of this kingdom, you need the power of the Spirit operating in your life each and every day, not just on a Sunday morning. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, it says, This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. In other words, we've got to keep at it. Keep at it. Here's a third point, Pentecostal power. Pentecostal power comes when you overcome apathy with zeal. Let me say that again. Pentecostal power comes when you overcome apathy with zeal. Now, you can't just try to be good and think you're a Christian. You can't just point back to some born-again experience and say that you're a Christian. You need, to be de you need a desire to be transformed into the image of Christ to be like him. And you can't be apathetic towards the thing of God, things of God and expect anything to happen. See, true transformation... It just, re, it just results in a complete change of heart. It, it comes about wanting to know God more and to love God more each and every day. See, friends, the more that you know God, the more you're going to love him, the more excited you become. And the more you love God, the more you want to tell somebody else about God. And the more you experience his power and his presence, the more of it you want. See, that's the way to live. You know, do I need to remind all of I'm going to remind us all again. I remind myself, Barry, you've been forgiven. Tommy, you've been forgiven. We need to be reminded of that. We've inherited eternal life. By, by saying, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and stepping across the line, we've got eternal life. We experience eternal love. God cannot love us any more or any less than he does right now. Therefore, therefore, we ought not to hold anything back Therefore, because we found this pearl of great price that's worth more than anything we've ever had or possessed, we ought to just plain simple, you know, put the pedal to the middle. Full throttle Pentecostal power. That's the way it ought to be. Not long ago, I was listening to Chuck Colson. I can't remember if I was reading Chuck Colson or listening to Breakpoint. But he talked about a couple of people that Boy, did they hit the nail on the head. Colson was talking about a columnist whose name was Jonathan Rao. Jonathan Rao is an avowed atheist. Jonathan Rao has coined a new word. The new word is apatheism. Apatheism. It means apathetic theism. This is what Jonathan Rao said. It's not that people don't believe in God anymore. The majority of people will say they believe. But on the whole, Rao says, people don't put much thought or effort into their faith. They're looking for comfort and reassurance. They are not looking for a God who asks anything of them. Hence, he says, apathyism is a disinclination to care all that much about your own religion and an even stronger disinclination to care about somebody else's religion. Wow. Is that the way you are? That you really don't care much about your relationship with God? And you care even less about anybody else's relationship? He went on to talk about another guy whose name is David Brooks. He's a writer. He came up with a new word, too. It's called flexidoxy. Flexidoxy is flexible beliefs. And flexidoxy even though you don't find the first church of flexidoxy today, flexidoxy 
describes a form of religion that is very popular amongst the young educated of America today. Basically, it means that these people have been raised by people who probably practice apathyism, uh, but they become very flexible in their belief system and they look at religion as if it's kind of a giant buffet table and so they walk through and they pick whatever makes them feel good or suits their purposes. They literally become their own God and they have a religion that is comfortable for them. This is how you can explain, for example, people who wear a cross around their neck but have a Buddha sitting in their living room because they saw it on home and garden television and it looked cute. People like that ought to be smote in the head with the Buddha. We're not willing to deal with the God who asks things of us. I want you to contrast this with a guy whose name is Aaron Ralston. Maybe some of you remember reading about Aaron Ralston. He had his right arm pinned by an 800-pound boulder in a climbing accident. Aaron is an extremely experienced climber. He had climbed all of the 14,000-foot peaks in Colorado. He was climbing now in Utah. Now, he admitted that he had always thought about dying up on the mountain. He always figured that someday his parents would find his body up there, or maybe that nobody would find his body at all. But here he is pinned, right arm, by an 800-pound boulder. And after five days being there, he ran out of food and he ran out of water. And so he decided to do something about it. He made a tourniquet and he amputated his arm below the elbow with his pocket knife. He then rigged up some anchors and then he repelled himself down to the canyon floor with his one good arm and he walked downstream until a Utah public safety helicopter spotted him and took him out. Now, because Aaron wanted to live, he was willing to cut away anything and everything that was holding him back. Now, what the media did not talk much about was the fact that this Phi Beta Kappa scholar who graduated from Carnegie Mellon University was also an extremely dedicated Christian. And he said that it was his faith in God that enabled him to do what he did. When I heard that story, I did not think, I wonder if I could ever cut off my arm. That, that didn't cross my, my mind. But I remember when I heard that story, I thought to myself, am I willing to cut away everything that is holding me back and walk out of the canyon of bondage so that the Holy Spirit could pick me up and show me new life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore we are surrounded by such a huge cloud crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. Let us strip off all of the weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily hinders our progress. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Friends, too many of us have too much stuff hanging on us. And we're not willing to cut it off so that we can be all that the Spirit wants to enable us to be. We're too busy looking backwards and not looking forwards. I'm going to share one more Bible passage with you, but I can never share this without thinking about a horribly embarrassing time in my life. I'm a senior in high school playing football, playing outside linebacker. I was, I was really pretty good because I played behind an all-state tackle. I got a lot of uh, pylons. <laughs> but 
The other team had driven the ball down to about our five-yard line. And for some strange reason, they ran this kind of pitch to my side, playing outside linebacker, and I stepped in between that pitch and intercepted it, and I had 95 yards of green grass ahead of me. Well, you know, with my blazing speed, I was opening up a huge gap between me and the opponents. In fact, when I crossed the 50-yard line, I began thinking about how they were going to carry me off the field on their shoulders, and how I'd probably be named homecoming king for life, and you know, every cheerleader would want to marry me, and, you know, and all the college kids who were there would probably say, gosh, you can be a starter on the college team for four years. You don't even need to come to practice. And, and for some strange reason, when I got to about the far 10-yard line, I decided to turn around and look back to see how much distance I'd put between myself and the enemy. But when I turned and looked this way, some fool hit me over here, and the ball popped out, and they recovered it on the five-yard line, and the game ended. You all had to walk off a football field and face your coach after doing something stupid like that. I went to a Lutheran high school. You thought I'd gotten would get a little grace. He took me by the face mask, and he said in a kindly tone, "Don't ever do that again." or something to that effect. <laughs> and he said, when you're running for a touchdown, don't ever look back. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. This is why it always means something special to me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, I forget what is behind. And I strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. People who are able to do that are operating in Pentecostal power. I want to close by reading you something that was handed to me by one of the inmate pastors at Louisiana State University in Louisiana State, yeah, Louisiana, yeah, Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola, Louisiana. It's about the Holy Spirit. It kind of sums it up. This, I don't know where this comes from, but he gave me a sheet that had it on. It says, when God sends forth the Holy Spirit, Amazing things happen. Barriers are broken down. Communities are formed. Opposites are reconciled. Unity is established. Disease is cured. Addiction is broken. Cities are renewed. Races are reconciled. Hope is established. People are blessed. And church happens. Today the Spirit of God is present. So people, be ready. Get ready. God is up to something today. And when God is up to something... Discouraged folks had better cheer up. Dishonest folks, you better fess up. Sour folks, you better sweeten up. Closed folks, it's time for you to start opening up. Gossipers, shut up. Conflicted folks, make up. Sleeping folks, wake up. Lukewarm folks, fire up. Dry bones, shake up. And pupitators, stand up. When this happens, when the Holy Spirit has done his job, Christ, the Savior of the world, is lifted up. May God see to it it happens in your life, the life of this church, in my life, and everyone who comes to know Jesus, that they experience continuous Pentecostal power. In your worship folder,